Well, before I get started this morning, I just wanted to extend uh, my gratitude to uh, Brother Sean. Um, it is Pastor's Appreciation Day today. Um, I want to acknowledge Sean um, this morning just quickly, just letting him know um, how much I appreciate his pastoral leadership in this church and his pastoral leadership to me and his family, our family, uh, personally. Uh, I don't really know how I'd be able to function without him. Um, I know a lot of times you don't see all the work that's done behind the scenes or the ministry that's going on behind the scenes, but um, I just want to just take a quick minute or so and just thank Pastor Sean for all of his hard work and uh, just a blessing he is to me in this church and uh, all the time and all the investment that you've put uh, into this church. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and Sister Carly, you as well. Um, thank you for all your time and effort and supporting Sean and uh, his call to ministry here at this church. And you guys are a great blessing and love you both. So thank you. Turn your Bibles if you would play this morning. Yes. Definitely, 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 definitely a round of applause. Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Judges. Yes, I did say Judges. Turn your Bible to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. Starting in verse 12. Judges chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Starting in verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubic length, and he did fasten it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, Eglon king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to, the, to offer the present, he sent him away, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal. Really, in other words, you could say, turn from the idols. And said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the handle also went in after the blade. And the fat closed in upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And there dirt came out. 
Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Syria. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him, and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, all lusty and all men of valor, and they escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We come to the throne of grace. And Lord, we rely on your strength. For the Bible says the Lord is our strength. Our refuge in time of trouble. The lifter of our heads. Lord, we're thankful today for the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live godly lives, lives that are pleasing in your sight, lives that have been converted from being under the wrath of God now to being under the pleasure of God. Lord, we stand here as your redeemed church. We're here this morning not to hear a fancy sermon, But we're here to worship Christ. We're here to worship our Lord, to hear what God would have to say to us this morning. Lord, we surrender to your majesty this morning. Be glorified, Lord, in the preaching of your word. Open up the hearts of your people. Give them ears to hear, Lord. Give them eyes to see the beauties of Christ this morning. Grant us all the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of my message today is A Message from God to You. Does that sound cheesy? Trust me, it's not. This being the last words that came out of the mouth of Ehud before sending his adversary, the king of Moab, into eternity. Do you think the king liked his message? I would say I don't think so. This particular verse can be unsettling knowing that God's message may come to a person either in redemption or in judgment. Paul echoes this very thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 26 when he says, To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. And this morning I would like to approach this particular story with a look at the man, Ehud, and the the message. I'd like to take a look at this left-handed assassin and how his life would apply to our lives. First I'd like to look at the man and obviously his message. 
The historical context here is that the book of Judges, which really has been coined by many scholars as the book of failure. But in the story of Ehud, it is a clear illustration of how God uses failures. And this is the beauty of of the gospel, and this is the beauty of the scriptures, and this is the beauty of the story of Ehud, because the illustration is extremely effective because it shows how God uses failures then, and he still uses failures today. I'm a failure. I'm not a superstar. I have failed time and time and time and time and time and time again. But it's not about me. The power doesn't rest in me. The glory doesn't rest in me. But it rests in this reality that Jesus Christ, despite our failures, uses our failures for his glory. And in many times, uses our failures to triumph over the enemy. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times. But it doesn't end there because it says he rises up again and again and again. Proverbs 25, 25 says, A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Ehud was raised up in a most trying and dark period of history. This portion of history known as the Judges was covered with 17 total judges. Some were warrior rulers, one being a priest, another being a prophet, which gives a cumulative picture of the three offices that ultimately find their satisfaction in Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The book of Judges follows the death of Joshua, which is a stark contrast to the life and mission that was given to Joshua. In Joshua, we discover an obedient people who conquer the land through trust in the power of God. In Judges, however, we discover disobedient and idolatrous people who are defeated time and time again because of their rebellion towards God. But before we get too depressed at these failures and these continual cycles of rebellion, we must also look at the other end of how God uses failure to strengthen his people. In uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 1, it says that, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them to war. And Judges 3.12 says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. We can see the parallel here that God allowed the enemies to come into Israel. Why did he allow that? First and foremost, obviously we know that the rebellion brought an invasion from the enemies, which it always does and it still does today. But the reality is that there's good in that reality as well because God uses our enemies at times to strengthen us and to correct us, and to teach us to war. We see the benefits of both ends. Even though nobody likes to fall under the judgment of God, but ultimately at the end of the day, it should bring repentance. But also, when this judgment comes, it has an opposite effect on the people of God because it teaches us how to fight. 
The Lord said in Genesis 15, 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, but by the time of the judges, let me just say this much, it was full. After the flawed but obedient success of Joshua in a 40-year revival underneath the banner of Caleb's son, Achnael, Israel plunges even deeper into sin. Their lack of trust in the Lord leads to a lack of obedience. Their sick and sinful compromise leads to all kinds of gross behavior. They were commanded to remove their enemies from the land and their filthy behavior, but instead of removing the moral cancer... They contracted the disease. The Canaanite gods literally became a snare to them. First, it is said that they lived with the Canaanites. Second, it says they warred with the Canaanites. And number three, they ended up just living exactly like the Canaanites. Big issue there. In Judges 21-25, the author sums up the book by saying, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I mean, this is a, a wake-up call. Um, I know we... I find the Bible extremely interesting. I love reading the Word of God. I love studying out these stories. I love looking at biographical sketches of certain individuals that God had raised up in certain times of history. But we also have to take this book and we take the Word of God and we need to apply it to our own lives as well. We need to understand this also in the perspective in the days that we're living now. We have to understand that we too as the church, I mean, just because we're in the what you'd want to call the New Testament era, era doesn't mean that we don't fail. And we can fall into the same cyclical damage as the judges did in their history. If you say, well, I don't really believe that. Really? Have you looked at our nation lately? Have you looked at the condition of the church lately in this country? Have you seen the, the atrocities that, that go on in this country that really were birthed from the Canaanites? I mean, have you seen the paganization of this country and the little that's being done with the Christian church confronting these things, but instead they're hiding from these things? When in reality, we should be confronted to fight, not participate, not to end up living just like them. And then because then we want to make an excuse and we want to convert our churches into paganized churches to try to win the pagans and it has no effect and it becomes a reproach to the living God. Within the book of Judges, there are actually seven cycles of oppression and deliverance. Each of the seven cycles has five steps. Number one, it was rebellion. Number two, it was retribution. Number three, it was repentance. Number four, it was restoration. And number five, it was rest. And these are the cycles that we see over and over and over. Then you ask yourself this question, why these continual cycles? Well, the answer is because of continual disobedience. Disobedience. Joshua's assignment we read in Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 17, where God gave these instructions to Israel. He said, in the, city, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave any... Do not leave any alive, anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded you. Not asked you, not gave you the, uh, the, the, the middle ground there, not giving you an option. 
He has commanded you to completely destroy them. Which we know that Joshua didn't. He had made peace with some of them and they remained in the land. But one must understand when we talk about the sin and the practices of the Canaanites, they were not just talking about a small group of people in these nations. We're talking about everyone. Everyone including women and in some cases children were involved in the following practices. The Canaanite people were an extremely violent people. Involved in and promoting idolatry, gang rape, bestiality, child sacrifice, and many other evil, grotesque practices. Sound familiar? These things are rampant in our day and in our country. And, and, and I can understand, and I, you know, you may disagree with me. Listen, it's okay to disagree with me, by the way. But I see the invasion of a lot of things that have come into this country and the condition that we're at in this country an exact reflection of our disobedience towards God. In our rebellion towards God, we have become a clenched fist in the face of God. Wanting to do what's right in our own eyes and wanting God to accept that. And then when judgment comes into our nation, things come into our nation, we're invaded uh, by our enemies into this nation, God allows our enemies to take control of us, take over us, run over us, put us into slavery. Very similar to this day. We shouldn't be twiddling our thumbs and wonder what's going on. We should examine ourselves and see where we're at as the church of Jesus Christ. Where we're at individually. And what things are we permitting, not only in the church, but in the world. Now, are we confronting the issues of the world or are we hiding from everybody? You see, because the enemy loves to put us in fear. Cowardliness is never a virtue. Fear is not a virtue. I mean, the fear of God is. But I'm talking about being frightened of the world. That's not a virtue. The more afraid you are doesn't mean that's the more virtuous you are. See, we're teaching in our day and age that the more frightened we are of everything that's going on in the media, the more virtuous we become. And it's just the opposite. The more frightened we are, it's not more virtuous that we become. It's more cowardly that we become. It's good to be cautious. It's good to be safe. Don't get me wrong. But when a nation's number one focus is safety, that nation is doomed to fall every single time. We look at the nature of the Canaanite sin. It was idolatry. It was incest. It was adultery. Bestiality, child sacrifice. I mean, do we honestly believe that God is just going to wink at these things in our day? And that we're all under grace and it's okay? It's not a big deal? I mean, how can we honestly believe that? That we can go on living this way and just say, hey, everybody sins. It's true. Everybody does sin. We all struggle. We all have our battles. Right? We all have these things going on. But it offends God. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account. We're going to stand before Christ and give an account for us. I'm going to have to give an account for my life. Many say, well, you know, we're not going to fall under any judgment in that sense. I get all that. If you're truly converted, you're not going to fall under the wrath of God. But there's going to be a lot we have to account for when we stand before Christ. Study history. You'll see any time evil arose in any capacity, the church dove right in against it. Every single time. Read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, it's a thousand-page book just covered 
with historical biological sketches of men and women and children who stood up for Christ in some of the most evil situations. And they cost them their lives. But they weren't afraid. When you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I think you should if you haven't, you will see that the Christians in there were not afraid. They were more afraid of offending God than they were about losing their lives to the world. That's amazing reality. Because that's what I would desire to be and desire to grow into. That I would be more fearful of offending God than offending the world. Jesus sent his disciples into the very armpit of his culture. This isn't a, a, a unique situation where a godly man goes into an infested culture. It's normal Christianity. It's the normal behavior of one who has been born again. They don't run from the war. They run towards the war. They run into the heat of battle. They confront these things, opposed to being enslaved by these things. I'm not saying that we, we don't take persecution on the chin, because we do. We're not talking about persecution here. We're talking about a vile, blasphemous behavior that's being propagated everywhere you look and doing nothing about it. Who was Ehud anyways? Let's take a look at this guy. First of all, Ehud was left-handed. Who interestingly enough was of the tribe of Benjamin. When Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, as she lay there dying, she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of of my right hand. In Hebrew, this is a pun, for it can mean either I come from my father's right hand, the hand of authority and rulership, or I am right-handed. Benjamin, however, seems to be left-handed, for we find that the left-handedness became a characteristic of the descendants, which actually made Ehud a true Benjamite. 1 Chronicles 12, 2 says, also mentions a squad of ambidextrous, that means you have the use of both arms, both hands, who also were Benjamites. David's general Joab is also known to be either left-handed or ambidextrous that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 28 through 10. He grabs his opponent's beard with his right hand while holding a sword in his left. The opponent takes no heed of the sword in his left and is undefended when Joab strikes. Ehud was a Benjamite, and the phrase translated left-handed man is a very interesting Hebrew idiom. It literally reads, a man bound or restricted, hear me now, restricted in his right hand. The same phrase is used in Judges 20, verse 16, to describe 700 slingers, also of the tribe of Benjamin. These two verses are the only places where the idiom is used. But in light of Jewish culture and belief, the left-handed man was deemed inferior or was seen as a cripple. Ehud lived in a day where much of the culture was geared around a right-handed environment. Ehud's plight would be seen as a curse, certainly not a blessing, a hindrance opposed to an asset. But in the end, his handicap, hear me now, made him uniquely suited for what God had called him to do. In the world's eyes, he was unfit, but in God's eyes, he was a vessel fit 
for the master's use. Interestingly, right, the the Benjamite, you know, Benjamin actually means right hand. But then you look at Benjamites throughout the scriptures and they were left-handed. And they were seen as inferior. They were seen as crippled if you were left-handed. The military advantage to being left-handed are such as the enemy expects to be fighting, at this point in history, a right-handed man. The lefty has the element of surprise, which even for a few seconds can determine the outcome. This holds only for individual combat. Units fighting together would want to be using the same hand. Then if you have a whole unit of lefties against a unit of righties, you have the left's advantage again. They are trained to fight righties and are attacking the unshielded side, while the righties have to rethink and mirror every offensive move they make while trying to stay alive. You see, we have to understand that a lot of times in life, the things that seem to us as if we're crippled are the very things that God uses for his glory. Many of us have situations in our own lives that are crippling. And sometimes we seem, because of these 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 defects in our lives we see at times or we judge ourselves sometimes by the world standards and we we see ourselves unfit or um, not valuable or not able to be used. We have to understand something. When, when, When we are in that state, we depend more upon God. We trust more in the Lord where we're in a state or where our, our handicaps are used for God's glory. In an article written by Will Knight called Left-Handers Win in Hand-to-Hand Combat, he writes, Left-handed people may be better equipped for close-range mortal combat than those who rely on their right hands, according to researchers. They discovered a correlation between levels of violence and the proportion of the left-handed population. The more violent a culture, listen to this now, the higher relative proportion of left-handers. The cause of this, researchers suggest, that the left-handers are more likely to survive hand-to-hand combat. And this is something we have to remember because Ehud could not glory in his left-handedness because ultimately, you see, the glory goes to the one who is seated at the right hand of power. And when dealing with the right hand, we're dealing with Christ. And this is why all glory must be given to Christ. As as Stephen said in Acts 70, Acts 755, he said, Look, and I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 3 says he was seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12 says he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can see the illustration and the reality why no credit can be given to my right arm. See, God uses the cripples so the right hand of power can get all the glory. It's, right, it's God's right hand of power that delivered Israel. No matter how crafty we are, God will take the crippled saint and use him for his glory. Because the self-righteous have no need for a physician, 
They have it all together. All their skills, all their talents, all their abilities, and they remain unuseful to the Lord. We have the broken man, the one with Jacob's limp, who is used for the glory of God. The one who is crippled. Maybe it's they even have a crippling depression, crippling anxiety, crippling sickness. Maybe it's something in their life that they have uh, struggled to get over and they feel like, you know what, God cannot use me anymore because of this crippling effect on my life. But it is the very thing that God had ordained to use you in a greater way. And most of the time, we just don't realize this because we compare ourselves with ourselves, which the Bible says is foolish. Run in your crippled state. Live for Christ in your crippled state. Worship Him in your sickness. Fight the battle with the limp if need be. Fight it with the left hand. This is how God receives the glory because it's not about you. It's not you. It's Christ in you that receives the glory. It is the right hand of power that receives the glory. We look at Ehud's weapon. In verse 16, it says that Ehud actually made it himself. I always ponder this thought because it represents even in John 2.15 when it says that Christ had made himself a whip of small cords. I mean, you ever stop for one moment and just think about this? That he made it? That he actually made it himself? He didn't go buy it? You know, all these tables, all this, these merchandise being sold? He didn't go buy himself a fancy whip for 50 cents? He made his own. And to me, that's even scarier. Because you wonder what he's thinking about it, thinking about when he's making it. Think about the dagger that Ehud was making. He made it himself. What was he thinking about? Because it's a customized piece that he's going to use for a specific job. He made it himself. I'm always fascinated by people who make things make things for themselves and are creative and build things. I mean, putting together guns or doing this or doing that. It doesn't always have to be in light of weapons, but because we're talking about weapons, there always seems to be a little bit more of a um, higher level of respect to the individual that can kind of put together his own stuff. They're seen as a little bit more dangerous. In Judges 3.16, it says, Now Ehud made him a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. One commentator says, but he had made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubic length. He said it was basically a little sword. Josephus calls it with two edges that it might cut both ways and to do the execution he designed it by. And it was about half a yard long, which he could the more easily conceal and use for the purpose. I mean, there was there was a specific purpose for the knife that he, the little sword that he was creating. There was a purpose for it, and it was designed to do a certain task. It was a two-edged sword, and he made it specifically so he could conceal it. He could conceal his weapon, and he could walk in and do the job and make sure that when he left, that his weapon did the job that it was designed to do. 
And we look at Ehud's strategy. It says that he bound it to his right thigh under his cloak. You see, King Eglon held the people, people under his yoke for 18 long, miserable years. Being a judge would also be considered the magistrate. Just remember, as we're thinking through this, and thinking through the life of Ehud and this story, just remember at this point, we just got to get over the reality that God had sent this man to kill a king. But before we jump into that and say, well, you know, how do you rightly divide the word of God when you're dealing with this issue? You also got to understand at this point, Ehud was a judge. He was a magistrate. He had every right to take that man's life. Because it was the magistrate. He was a movable, if you would, judge. He was a movable judge. A movable courtroom. That's scary. But he was going to bring judgment, civil judgment, down on King Elon for holding his people captive. But it was only when the people cried out. And notice the people didn't cry out for a person. It says that they cried out unto the Lord. And the Lord raised up Ehud. Their focus was on the Lord. The Lord hears the prayers of his people. He raises up a rescuer. It's Ehud who himself takes upon himself the call of God and begins to move in with the assignment that he had been called to do. Ehud was obviously known by Eglon because there was trust between the two parties. Then the cunning and wise Ehud says, after glancing over the Eglon shrine of idols, says, I have a secret message for you, O king. A tribute from the Most High. But this tribute will not be a trophy upon your shelf, but a 12-inch blade from heaven. When Ehud approached the room to see Eglon, he would have been inspected by the guards immediately. As being right-handed, which is the culture of the day, was more common than just as it is now. They would have searched his left side for a concealed weapon more carefully than the right. Talk about Ehud's strategy just being brilliant. A right-handed person draws a long blade from the left side. Apparently, upon seeing the left side was clear, they didn't search the right for hidden weapons. After all, it was unlikely that he could draw and use a blade from that side. And this is the picture that we're getting that Ehud, he had a call from God. He was a left-handed man, which in society he would have been seen as a cripple. We've seen Ehud's blade as he built it and constructed it for the job that God had called him to do. We see that Ehud himself wasn't just blindly going after somebody in a rage, but he had a carefully crafted strategy to end this oppression. And it says in Judges 3, verse 20, And while Eglon was alone, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he brought the present, which it says in 17, unto the king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. So first it's presented as a present. He had a gift for Eglon. I have a gift for you. Then it was presented as a secret. And then it was presented as a message. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came 
out. I mean, I know it's pretty disgusting uh, to read about and think about, but if we understand things as they were back then and the mindset that Israel had pertaining to tyrants, we wouldn't be so far away from understanding why this was accomplished. An interesting note as well, um, the name Eglon actually means calf. Matthew Henry comments that he fell like a fatted calf by the knife, an acceptable sacrifice to divine justice. This we saw as a covenantal oath. Oaths involve putting a hand under someone's, under someone's thigh. And in our culture, taking an oath usually involves raising the right hand or placing a hand over the heart or on a Bible. In ancient Hebrew culture, we find something a little different. In Genesis 24, verse 9, describes an odd practice that involved Abraham's servant swearing to obey his master's command to find a wife for Isaac. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Really, it's very covenantal in a lot of ways as well with the right thigh and dealing with the right thigh and having the blade fastened to the right thigh has so much covenantal language there mixed with it that if you would just expand the story and even go deeper, this whole idea makes sense. Ehud then escapes and blows the trumpet and the sons of Israel gather together and struck down 10,000 strong and robust Moabites and no one escaped and the land had revival for 80 long years. Story is extremely important to us today because first and foremost we have to understand that we as believers in one sense need to stand up. Need to stand up. And not only just, I know you've heard this from this pulpit many times, confronting our own sin, right? I understand that. But we're living in a day and an hour where we can't just kick things under the carpet and pretend they don't exist and then try to bury with our theological excuses. We're living in a time that demands our presence. Demands us to confront. Yes, we always need to preach the gospel. Yes, God's mercy shines forth. It even shines forth here. God's mercy shines forth in judgment. But as we see our nation crumbling before our very eyes, things happening to us before our very eyes, and for us just to push it off on the sovereignty of God is cowardly. So, well, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. Well, I understand that, but man's also responsible. We're also commanded by God in Scripture. He commands us to be a certain way. He commands us to do certain things. He commands us to live in a certain way. And it's not compromise. The church has always fallen when it begins to compromise. This is why it's so extremely important that we confront the issues of the day, obviously with the word of God and the gospel, seeing men and women and children converted and brought into a right relationship with Christ before they fall under divine justice, under the wrath of God forever. But also, we can't just sit idly by. 
why tyrants trample our land and we do nothing under the banner of pacifism. It's inexcusable. And it starts right here where I am today. It starts behind the pulpit. This is where it begins. And when our pulpits are healthy, the pews are healthy. And when the pews are healthy, our homes are healthy. When our homes are healthy, our cities are healthy. When our cities are healthy, our, our states and nations become healthy. It all starts from here. And this is why we need to repent of our sin against God and ask God once again as we call upon the Lord. We don't need him to raise up another deliverer. We have the deliverer. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the King of Kings. We have the great commander in heaven, the great commander of the universe. We need no other commander. But the reality is that we do need leadership in this country who will stand up and confront the tide of evil that goes on in this country. So I'm here this morning to tell you that God has a message for you. And it's no secret message either, but a most serious one. that we need to most certainly get right with God. I don't know how many of us in here who live as a pretender and play church and just play the game until you get out of here and then go on living just like the rest of the world. Impotent Christianity. No power evident in your life whatsoever. No fruit in your lives whatsoever that you are born of God. but that we would be stricken to our very core this morning, even just by looking at the simple life of Ehud and how God had used him for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. How can we learn from this? Are we just going to, you know, um, call on our magistrates to, to, to smite everybody? No. Am I going to go home and build myself a two-edged sword and, and run after Biden? No. First of all, I'm not a magistrate. I'm not a judge. Okay, it's not my position. But what I can do is repent of my sin and my gross behavior before God and my blatant hypocrisy. Living like the world, conforming to the world, flattering the world, loving the world and turning to the Lord God and crying out to Him from the innermost portion of my being that He would pour out His Spirit once again upon His people. People always talk about revival. They love to say the word revival. This makes them feel good. But there needs to be biblical repentance to see a true biblical revival. The church needs to repent. It needs to repent of its sin against God. I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom person up here this morning and trying to make everybody just feel absolutely rotten. I, I'm here as an encouragement saying, God has given us time. We're all still breathing. We're all still here. The mercy of God is new every morning, the Bible says. We have an opportunity to seek Christ. God has given us the opportunity as a body of believers to seek his name, to seek his face, to call upon his name, to cry out to God once again that he would pour out his spirit once again upon his people. It's not just turning away from ugly sin. Instead of turning away from adultery and porn and all this stuff, it's from our self-righteous attitudes as well. Being overly religious to the point where your faith is rendered useless. 
truly filled with the Spirit of God, truly turning to God and being used by God for God's glory. God uses your handicaps and your dysfunctional life for His glory. Don't give up just because you failed so many times. Righteous man falls seven times. That's number seven. It's a continual sense of an illustration of the Christian life. Many of you may be sitting here today utterly just buried in shame for something you have done throughout the week and feel like there's just no way that God can use you anymore with your continual habitual sin. I'm telling you wrong about that. You cannot out the grace of God. God's mercy is here for you today. And if you're his, he loves you. And he's willing to cleanse you of all of your sin and enable you to overcome that sin. So your dysfunctionals don't disqualify. Being dysfunctional or being handicapped doesn't disqualify you from being used by the Lord. As a matter of fact, I've seen God take people in seasons of life where they feel like they've utterly shipwrecked their faith and the whole time God had ordained it for his glory and for the good of that saint because when they came out the other end, they were completely transformed and delivered. I love you, uh, church, very much. And I, I, I'm saying this from a heart that has been through that and still goes through that. Um, self-righteous behavior and you know, self-righteous isn't just going around saying, look at me how great I am. Self-righteousness is, is not, it, it is the perfectionism that we all fall under and say, oh, I didn't pray long enough today. I didn't do this right today. I didn't do enough of this today. Therefore, I'm shamed because of that. That's, that's, that's not the, 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 the gospel of grace. Biblical grace gives us the ability and freedom to, do, to escape those things and to live free of those things that held us in slavery for so long. But if you have the wrong gospel, it's going to put you into a deeper slavery because it's not biblical. It's really a false works righteousness that can really disable you even more. The cycle of habitual sin, as we saw in Israel over and over and over again, can be broken by looking to Christ and resting in his love. Obviously, Eglon means calf, in which Israel connected the meaning to their ancient sin of the golden calf. And his name also means circle, as in circumcision. So here we have Ehud going there, circumcising, cutting off the evil, removing this abscess so Israel could flourish and experience revival once again. Take out your own sword, but not the two-handed sword, other the physical sword, but of Hebrews 4.12 and meditate. Where it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any other two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints of marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of heart of the heart. Ultimately, Scripture never exalts heroes or men in the sense that they are acting independently from God, but always show that it is God who delivers, rescues, and redeems his people. So go forward today in the spirit of Christ as men have done throughout church history and throughout what we read in scripture. Recognize the abominations that are going on in our world and in our country and confront them. Confront them. I think I think pacifism is birthed from the very pit of hell. 
Pacifism is not biblical. Taking authority and dominion over areas where sin reigns is biblical. Confronting these issues of our day is biblical. We must confront the issues of this day that are going on all around us. I know, I know talk like this can clear a church real fast. But I'm not up here just being political. Okay, I'm not. I'm just generally speaking that if you study and read the Bible, you will see very clearly here that nowhere in Scripture does God allow the two to run together. Wherever the church is, wherever God's people are seen in Scripture, the ones that are, that are on the right side of God are always fighting and confronting evil in their day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We're thankful for the spiritual models that we see in Scripture. Lord, that we can, um, we can learn from. We can see that their lives and, and take from it, Lord God, encouragement, knowing that ultimately at the end of the day, we're all dysfunctional. We're all handicapped, but that's good because we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in the living God. So Lord, I'm asking you today that you would move mightily by the Spirit of God through this congregation, through the hearts of your people once again. Lord, that you would awaken us to this reality and that we would stand up for truth. Not only confronting the sins that lie dormant in our own hearts, but also, Lord, to confront the sin that's trying to sneak through the front doors of our homes. Be exalted, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.